Welcome back to another exciting edition of Talks Now. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman, physician and medical toxicologist from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. If you're tuning in now, this is the second part of our two-part interview with Chris Hoyt talking about athletes, performance, and performance-enhancing drugs. In part one, we talked about steroids and growth hormone, but in this one, we're going to talk about cycling, blood doping, and how do you test for performance-enhancing drugs without actually testing for the drugs? I repeat the disclaimer from part one. It's hard to talk about performance-enhancing drugs without naming names, and so we're going to name some names, but we have to repeat that all of these cases are alleged. We haven't reviewed the individual cases or medical files and have not provided care to anyone mentioned and are only using names and specific athletes as examples of alleged abuse of performance-enhancing drugs. So once again, please don't sue the podcaster. And with that done, let's jump into the second part of our interview with Chris. So training at altitude, essentially to boost your red blood cells. And this is partially, I feel like there's two reasons why this is such a hot topic. It's such an important topic, partially because of the NFL and a lot of uh, scandals in terms of not just the NFL, really every professional sport and a lot of uh, scandals around performance enhancing substances, but also everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite homeboy, every, you know, Lance Armstrong, Mm -hmm. everyone loved, loved him. And, you know, the man with, with one testicle and, and he did it. But, but then it turned out that he had some help. So Lance Armstrong, um, actually growing up, was one of my heroes. Lance Armstrong went to the same high school I did. And uh, he was a true legend uh, and a hero for two very big reasons. He was a star athlete in cycling after surviving cancer. So that put him on the pedestal. Anyone can do, you can do this. Um, he's the quintessential athlete like I, against all odds. I'm a grinder. You can do this too if you put your mind to it. And then the second thing is his foundation. You know, he did a lot. He's he's actually done a lot of good for a lot of people um, through his foundation. So he deserves credit for that. The Live Strong Foundation. No, I'm sorry. The Live Strong Foundation. That's correct. However, cycling is tough because of all the sports, uh, cycling is a, a where you might want to use performance enhancing drug almost more than any other. And the reason being, for example, the Tour de France is like a, almost a three week race. It's one of it's an unbelievably long race with France and surrounding countries. And these guys go up to altitude. They go to the Alpe d'Huez and all these very high peaks in France and the French Alps. And it's grueling. I mean, to say it's grueling is an understatement. I mean, that's one of the hardest athletic events in the world. And so these guys put their bodies through a lot to do this. And the issue is, is that not only do they ride, you know, a hundred and some odd kilometers per day, but then they got to do that, get off their bike, rest that night, and they got to do it again the next day. So their recovery between the, those, those races is very important for performance in each subsequent race. And as the race goes longer, that recovery becomes harder and harder and harder. So, of course, they're looking for strategies in order to improve this recovery period between, their, between the races. And so, you know, Lance Armstrong won seven Tours de France, which is considered to be the Super Bowl of cycling. And he won seven of them, which is unheralded. Even the great Eddie Merckx uh, from decades ago, who won, I believe, five Tour de France's, um, who's considered the, le- the legend of cycling. Nobody was ever going to break that record of winning about f- I think he won five of them. Have Lance Armstrong come in and win seven was, everyone thought, this is an unbelievable, unbelievable feat. 
So it hurt a little bit more when it was actually came to light that Lance Armstrong had been using performance enhancing agents. But he had a twist because the, the classic thing would be I can carry more oxygen to my muscles and to my organs if I have more red blood cells. Correct. That oxygen carrying formula, Correct. blood helps me. Correct. You go longer. Yeah. With that. Yes. And classically, that has been from either originally living at altitude, maybe. Mm-hmm. So your body makes more EPO, so That's you make right. more red blood cells. You get that polycythemia. That's right. Bad smokers all get also get polycythemic, <laughs> but it's not really a performance enhancing thing. That's right. Doesn't help. And so then we came up with synthetic EPO. That's right. It used to be, I believe, either a hamster or a gerbil is where they first started to um, purify EPO from a, either a hamster or a gerbil. But, of course, it's a different animal than a human. So instead of making the, the potential for any cross-reactivity, what we decided to do was make it synthetic. So there's a recombinant human or RH EPO, so a recombinant human EPO, erythropoietin, uh, that athletes can use to boost their rhythm. So it's like I can inject it at, at sea level, and it's like I'm living at 15,000 feet. Okay. Do they have to kill the hamster to get? That sounds like a lot of hamsters. That's it's a lot of hamsters. That's like a Cruella Deville. Of, okay, all right. But now it's synthetic. Yes. And you can inject it, and EPO effectively stimulates erythropoietin. It stimulates uh, hematopoiesis. That's right. It stimulates hematopoiesis from the kidney, and so you get um, increased red blood cell mass. And as you said, what you get is um, what you end up getting is uh, the ability to ride. For, so it's not that it doesn't do anything for your muscle mass or anything. So it's not that you can pedal harder. So cyclists talk about being on their limit. So that's the about as hard as the cadence as they can go when they, when they step, when they're doing their pedaling, their cadence. They can be on their limit for a longer period of time. Okay. Do you, do you know, like, essentially, because when, when the cell runs out of oxidative mm-hmm. energy, it starts to shift everything towards the pyruvate instead of going into the TCA Correct. cycle yeah. goes into lactate. Correct. So, so do you know... all anaerobic at that point. Right. And so in theory, delivering more oxygen would prevent that. Do you know if there's been any association between lactate levels and, and polycythemia or red blood cell levels? So it's called... So, well, I, I'm, not, I see, I'm not sure that there's a study of looking at that. I'm sure that... There I know that's there. a weird question. Yeah. But. I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there is... But there's an index that they talk about, and it's oxygen debt. So meaning that when they're cycling, they, they feel a certain way, and they know, I am now in my oxygen debt. Meaning, like you just said, I've, the cells are running out of oxygen. There's, there's very limited oxygen now being delivered to the cell. So instead of making ATP to, through Krebs, which is oxidative and aerobic, um, and making much more ATP, it's all now anaerobic, and the, the downstream product is lactate. And so what the EPO does is it prevents that debt, meaning that, okay, now the cells have run out of, or not run out of oxygen, but, you know, very low amount, lower amount of oxygen has been delivered to them, but yet they're still trying to maintain that same cadence. And so now they've run into that situation where they can feel like, oh, I'm in debt now. Okay. And I guess you could look at the extraction ratio too to see that, because very often we deliver way more oxygen than we need to Mm -hmm. our cells, but really elite athletes their body starts extracting a lot of oxygen, that's right. but that's a bad sign. That's a very bad sign. That means, I mean, it's bad in that they can't, that can't last forever. You got to pay the piper at some point, and while they're going, you can they, they can increase your extraction ratio to, to make up for that small amount of time. But then there comes a point where now that's gone also, and they start to slow down because your body can't do that anymore. But there, but there's adverse effects from EPO, right? So just too much, too much. Um, too many red blood cells and the blood just starts to get sludgy, That's right? right? And so there's... Polycythemia for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there are cases of uh, cyclists who use EPO 
that uh, died. So there's there are some cases of you know some junior cyclists and teams that have used EPO that uh, have died, and they think it's due to complications of the yeah, erythropoietin. So erythropoietin is not without its uh, its side effects. Okay, and which is why cycling is trying to they have banned it from from use. I mean, and their and their hemoglobins get pretty high, right? Mm-hmm. They they get up to they get up to twenty or what are they? So there's a new. It's interesting that you say that. There's a new thing called a biological passport. So you basically in the, you're coming into the season and you have to take. So every athlete has to take different blood draws over a course of time and becomes what's called your passport because each individual is like a fingerprint. Each individual is different. And so what they do is they watch your concentration of hemoglobin and they use statistical analysis to look at each individual blood draw and determine whether or not the, the probability that that is a normal physiologic hemoglobin, what the, what the probability of that. And so there's some standard error, but um, at, at a certain point, if you trigger the test, like let's say that my hemoglobin was 15, 15, 15, and then all of a sudden I have a 19, that triggers a test. That's considered a positive test, and then you get the full battery of testing from there to determine if you can use it. Okay, and then and if you were like, well, I was living at sea level, and then I moved to Denver for a year, mm-hmm. then that might be it might be a plausible explanation for a change. So that's one of the reasons why, as a part of this, they have to know where they are. Exactly. Right? So if you must, by law, if you travel anywhere, so in season, no matter what, if you travel anywhere, you have to let the governing body know exactly where you are. So you say by law, but you mean by regulation. Sorry, I mean by regulation. Okay. Yes. I, the, the World Anti-Doping Agency, okay. I mean by regulation. I was going to say, if they had like police, they yeah, were like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You no. won't go to jail, okay. but you'll be kicked out of, you know, cycling or, or whatever the sport is, because you have to let them know exactly where you are. And it, it, so if you change your location, the governing body has to be alerted to where you've gone. Because they, like you said, they have to be able to explain if there's a deviation in your in your test is why and that makes sense because i think any physician has seen this too right you see somebody in the ed they have a hemoglobin of nine Mm -hmm. or eight and you're like oh my god that's that's low and then you look back and you're like oh they were eight two months ago they're always eight but if they're walking around with 14 and then all of a sudden it's eight then you ask yourself what inciting event what unnatural physiology is going on here so so that makes sense they're doing biomarker monitoring over time biomarker monitoring over time to determine any variation from that within a statistical uh, range, any variation of that is considered to be a positive test. And I think when you were talking about this, it seems like over time, the range actually gets tighter. Like the computer modeling Correct. gets better with more points. With more data points, yeah. you can predict a number with much more clarity than if you only have three or four points, which mm-hmm. is why they do it like this. Okay. Yeah, which is why it's a feature. And the reason why it is, I think, ingenious is because, think about it this way. If you take a drug, Right now, we're, we're reliant upon a test being able to detect a drug. Well, that's fraught with all sorts of difficulties because you can take a test or you can take a drug and then your body can metabolize the drug away and your test can't pick it up. So but that doesn't mean the drug wasn't there. But if you do this, this passport, the reason why the passport is a great idea is because now it looks at what that drug does to your body. And that lasts way longer than the actual drug being present. So the likelihood of catching a variation in physiology is way higher than being able to detect a drug by 
whatever. It's like what you were talking about with the photos, right? You know, everyone could tell looking at photos of the athlete, all of a sudden changes, right. doubles in body mass in one season. Yeah. I can't tell you what agent they took, what the dose was. Right. I don't have to test for it, but I can tell that the physiologic response is different enough. Right. No one goes through a second growth spurt. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Your body just doesn't naturally get that, you know, that big when you're looking at photos of people. So that's what the passport um, is. Everybody is, is hoping that the passport will level the playing field across all these these sports because it'll put it'll put the guy who's not using it'll give that person not necessarily an advantage but put them back in the game per se. Well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, we we talk about this. Everyone talks about performance enhancing substances, and everyone says, "Well, everyone's doing it." Well, there's a lot of money to be made, but at the heart of it, I think the tragedy of it is that it's about the game. That's right. And you know, we could watch robots play basketball mm-hmm. but the reality is the impressiveness of it is 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 watching a human being right. is watching a normal human being do something incredible spectacular that's yeah. right exactly and that's what we love right that's that's what's so cool about it i mean if you're using agents and things to to make it to make yourself better that's yeah, I, I agree with you there's something to be said about the purity of the game and, and um, um and i'm hoping that uh you know over time that these these and, and you know I'll, I'll say also the other end of it I'm interested, though, in the athlete's health. I, so, for example, you know, using growth hormone as a rehab drug, I'm not saying that we should be doing that, but I think it should be looked into um, to help athletes recover. Or, you know, the lot of reason why I want, I, you know, I'm interested in this is to also protect, like I said, high school athletes from doing something, even though their, their head's in the right place, they want to be bigger, stronger, faster, but, you know, there's a health aspect to it as well. And protecting them and educating them is important too. So I think it's a double-edged sword. It's protecting the game, but also protecting the athlete also. No, that's important, especially when they're when they're a learner still. Exactly. When they're exactly. they don't um, know any better, right? And these chemicals can have effects that we don't know about because there's, there can be a different response to something. Uh, when you're still developing and still growing uh, right. versus when you're a little bit older. That's right. And actually, just to jump back there, so we kind of said, so with, with Armstrong, I think one of the surprising things was it actually went, wasn't EPO there, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, EPO was not the sole use there. In that case, the performance enhancing agent was, was blood. Right. So, so, there's, so there's a couple of different things. So one of them is... The alleged, uh, sorry, the alleged performance yeah, enhancing alleged, agent, that's even right. though there have been some metals lost. But so yes. there's, there's, there is autotransfusion. Okay. So what you do is, um, if someone ever did this, what you would do is you would have someone come in, they would draw a liter or whatever of blood off. And this would be five, six weeks before whatever your event was. You go freeze it. You then um, come out and you thaw it. You know, it oh, sorry, you reverse transfuse yourself. So you bloodlet. You put back with, with, with just, uh, with just uh, saline to re-expand your blood body. You rely on the bone marrow to you know, increase your reticular side count to get your blood cell mass back to where it was. That takes a little while. That's a, you know, it takes a little while for that to happen. And then you're training that whole time. Once your red blood cell mass gets back to where it was at baseline, then you take the blood that you let, and then you go and you transfuse it back into yourself right before you go and train or go for your event. That does two things. One, it gives you obviously a boost in your red blood total, oh, total red blood cell mass. Concentration is still the same, um, but your total red blood cell mass goes up. So your performance gets better. But then the second thing it does is, you know, if you try to look to see if you've got different blood from someone else, using the agglutinins that um, a lot of the tests look for, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because it's your own blood. 
So that's the, the, that was for a long period of time, and a lot of cross-country skiers did this. That was the uh, benefit to doing that. However, now there are other more sophisticated tests that they can tell if you've been bloodletting. Um, and again, the hemoglobin, the, blood, the, the biological passport can tell on this one also because you're going to get a bump up in your hemoglobin outside of the statistical range you've been in. So you can tell if someone's been, um, you know, having autologous trans, transfusion. So, but before they didn't have that. So a lot of cyclists got away with doing that for a long period of time until it recently came out to light. And unfortunately, some very high profile people got caught doing that. And um, some major consequences were handed down. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's some other, I think, substances or things that are used. And there's some other testing. Is there anything there's else that comes to it? Oh, yep, yep. There's a beta-3 agonist that um, is used to, it's a nutrition uh, partition coefficient. helps you absorb carbohydrates and some other uh, materials. And it also increases your lean muscle mass. Um, there was another cyclist who um, had a positive test for clenbuterol. Um, there's a very, there's a very uh, uh, sophisticated assay that's used to be able to detect clenbuterol um, in the blood. And the rationale for having the clenbuterol at all, according to this particular cyclist, was that he ate the meat of, uh, of a cow that had been fed clenbuterol. However, there's a very sophisticated test that can tell the difference between eating uh, exogenous clenbuterol uh, uh, or versus using uh, clenbuterol. And that's how he was found to be in violation. Okay. And then if someone sees typically that would look like acute clenbuterol ingestion or toxicity would look like a sympathomimetic. That's right. Like, like you took too That's much albuterol. Yeah. Um, so you would get tachycardic, hypertensive, diaphoretic, tremor. And so yes, you would look very sympathomimetic. And actually even albuterol is considered a performance enhancing substance in inappropriate athletes for some sports agencies. Correct. So uh, you, if you have asthma, for example, and you have to use an inhaler, you have to get a very special, for the NCAA, for example, you have to get a very special waiver in order to be able to use that because, as you know, like for a swimmer, what a great drug to be able to take some puffs while you're waiting to go on and go swim your 100 meter. Um, that's a great drug to, to use. So the NCAA um, has, there's certain rules or, uh, and regulations around uh, the use of those beta agonists because they're, they're very good performance enhancers. Okay. Yeah. So beta agonists, anything else that we're... Another group uh, of performance enhancers, or, or performance enhancers is uh, you can use uh, sodium bicarbonate as used to be used. So um, it's only really used in racehorses now. But what you used to do in order to buffer lactate was right before like a marathon or some long distance event, you would use some sodium bicarbonate in order to buffer lactate to help you to go longer. So you could use that. So, but those are the biggest ones, the testosterone, uh, some EPO, autologous transfusion, Caffeine, like we talked about, amphetamines is another one. So beta blockers is another one. Let's say you're an archer, or or yes, yeah, so well, for performance anxiety, right? For performance anxiety, or or for your archer. Let's say that you're. Let's say you do. Um, let's say you do biathlon. So biathlon is where you ski around a circuit, and then you have to come up and shoot a gun and fire at this target. Uh, you have to hit the target at five separate occasions. And if you hit the target all five times and there's no penalty, you go off and you continue going around that circuit. If you miss, you have to go around this little area where there's basically a penalty time where you have to go around this thing to get back out on the course if you miss. Who comes up with these sports? (laughs) What if if we ski and then we shoot? Okay. All right. Let's just do that. Yeah, exactly. It's like a drive-by, a ski-by shooting. Okay. That's right. All right. So, yes. And so if you think about it, missing the shot is huge. If you miss... The time deducted 
if you miss a shot, it's very big for these guys. So they do not want to miss. So in fact, when they come in, when they've been skiing, they slow themselves down and take the time to make sure that they're accurate so that they don't miss. So you can imagine when you're, if you take a beta blocker, you calm yourself down so you have less jitter and slow your heart rate down a little bit so that you can fire more accurately. So that's another um, drug that people have used is beta blockers for, for that reason. And like you said, performance anxiety, if you're, if you're a, a, a free skater or something like that, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety on your routine, athletes will use that too. I mean, yeah. but part of that is like calming things down. Would they consider like do some do some organizations consider like benzos uh, an illicit substance for performance enhancement? Well, benzos are scheduled only, so yeah. that's considered benzodiazepines. The normal person shouldn't be taking. I mean, like, you would have to have a prescription from a physician in order to be taking them. But if you were like, I get really nervous during my biathlon and it affects my shot, could you? I don't think that the governing body would allow that as the reason. Okay. To use it for specifically for that. So if you are a nervous person, if you have anxiety at baseline, you should, you should you not be doing biathlon. That's right. You probably shouldn't be doing biathlon. Interesting. Good. Okay. Um, and the beta blockers would seem to blunt some of your normal athletic response. Although a lot of these athletes have resting heart rates in the forties. Exactly. Anyway. I was just going to say most of the most of these cross country skiers. I bet you they their their uh, low to mid forties is their resting heart rate already. So for them, it's not probably not that big of a difference. And so, yeah, so there's, there's, you know, there's diuretics that, you know, weightlifters oh, use because yeah. um, they need to saran wrap themselves. So they take, do that to drop weight, you know, to make sure they make their weight categories. So they'll use that. Um, so a whole host of, of, of uh, athletic performances enhancers like that. And that's not even counting. I mean, people will use bicarb or diuretics to try and evade detection on that's your right. end screen. That's true. No, that's true. Although a lot of these are serum screens. But. Yep. And then obviously one of the more popular ones that we didn't talk about is creatine. Uh, creatine is a very popular performance enhancer. And really, it's just the, the creatine phosphokinase cycle, um, increasing the amount of available phos- phosphate to, to phosphorylate, enzyme to phosphorylate ADP to make more ATP. So you can work on harder, longer, and gain more muscle mass. So there's, you know, those, those, those drugs that, you know, that's a pretty common one that doesn't have really major side effects unless, of course, you overdose on it, which a lot of high school athletes, not a lot, but high school athletes definitely do it. Because like we said, if this the effect is this, well, more respect. But the overdose on creatine, I know because it can interconvert to creatinine, it can increase your creatinine. Although the clinical significance of that is a little unclear <laughs> because, I mean, an increased creatinine in someone as a reflection of decreased clearance is concerning for renal impairment. But, but muscle it, mass, I agree, it's not as concerning. Okay, so what are the severe toxicity effects of creatine? Another one of the kids uh, we talked about that did the uh, energy drink plus uh, the alcohol. There are some cases where a kid took too much creatine, and I, I can't remember what the other agent was with it, and came in, you know, but with electrolyte disturbances and high creatine, had to get a dialysis too. I mean, Interesting. Yeah, there are a few cases out there, but now it's if, rare. If you had an elevated creatine, though. Yeah. Elevated creatinine in the setting of creatine ingestion. Would you recommend dialysis, or would you say that that was an incidental finding? I mean, I would say that's a natural finding from what because of the drug you're taking. Right. Hydrate them and tell them just you got to stop changing. Okay. Calm this down a little bit. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be super concerned just from a little bit of a bump in there. But if they had rhabdo and they had renal impairment, right, right, and it becomes a different story. And then you have to start looking at other markers of clearance. That's exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, to make sure that because now you can't use creatinine. Right. You have to use something else. So so you you so that's you're right. So that's it's not as concerning. No, well, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. All this else is fascinating. I I think 
I think that you are a man who loves sports and, and loves toxicology and physiology. I and I, I am sure that honestly that we talk about the evils of performance enhancing substances, but realistically, a lot of this also is just achieving peak performance. And so under medical supervision in the right setting, when we actually have studies and knowledge, a smart toxicologist could really help somebody out. Yeah, so I actually want, that's part of what I want to do as kind of a long-term thing is exactly that, is to take this mad scientist mentality using these drugs to, to evade detection and to improve performance, but yet to use it in a way, for example, the rehab aspect, for example, um, you know, if you're a weekend warrior and you just want to go do better on your triathlon, well, fine, you know, we can give you some some stuff to help augment whatever your, whatever your deficiency is, figure out what your deficiency is, help augment that, um, but do it in a very safe way. I think that there is a, um, a, a market definitely for that. Um, yeah, but just right now, the stigma against performance enhancing drugs is high. So it's hard to kind of get into that particular. If you can get it from a plant, I feel like the stigma is gone. Like if it's, <laughs> if it's crack, but it's from a plant, then it's okay. It's natural, <laughs> okay. but That's yes. Right. Or right. even like realistically, as we get older, we're often on other medications that right. may or may not be affecting our performance. Steroids, and so it's, steroids, for right. example, or one prednisone yeah. has been shown to affect performance. So you're, you're exactly right. Normal pharmaceuticals have been shown to, you know, affect VO2 max aerobic capacity and some other things. So that you're making a very good point. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It was a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to talk to you about this. Thank you. Uh, You're the head of the uh, section of sports medicine. Yes. uh, And ACMT and a fellowship director for RMPDC. And you can't see it here, folks, but he's a good looking man. So I wish, (laughs) but he's taken. So uh, thank you very much. Okay, great. Thanks. But wait, you're not done yet. So as happens with toxicology, sometimes the news moves faster than we do. And there was some recent headlines on a novel type of performance enhancing drug. So we uh, dragged Chris back into the studio and had a quick discussion with him about this other agent. So here's more from Chris. So uh, yeah, recently a very famous tennis player, Maria Sharapova, was cited as having tested positive for a drug called meldonium. Its actual generic name is mildronate, and it is a banned substance as of January of 2016. Okay, all right. So, so new to mel, 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 meldonium or mildronate. So meldonium or mildronate, yes. and it's a substance that has been available for a while and is popular amongst athletes That's right. and was recently added to the banned substance list. So old drug, new list. That's right. And actually, the original drug was marketed towards people that lived in Latvia. It's very strange. It's an Eastern European drug, and a lot of athletes take it. And actually, Maria Sharapova had been using it for 10 years. And the original indication was for... For, it was actually the clinical trials that were all used for mildronate. The clinical trials started around 2005. was for uh, diseases such as uh, coronary artery disease and congestive heart failure. And how does it work? So it works by two different mechanisms. One mechanism is it's colonomimetic, meaning it activates nitric oxide system, causing vasodilation. So people who have ischemic conditions, like coronary artery disease especially, or even the downstream sequelae like CHF, if you can increase blood flow um, to those areas, then it's perceived that you can increase function, and that's one of the mechanisms of mildronate. The other mechanism is that it is a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. So what it really actually does is it acts by inhibiting gamma butyrobutane, and what that does is it prevents the creation of carnitine. 
So carnitine is not the bad actor, but some of the the metabolites on the way to carnitine are. And so by inhibiting that, what is presumed and what has been shown in in vivo and in in vitro studies is that you prevent apoptotic cell death. So realistically speaking, it does two things. One is it, it presumes to increase blood flow. And the other thing that it presumes to do is to prevent or to protect the certain cells from cell death. Okay. And that was the Latvian equivalent of the FDA's approval. <laughs> That's correct. Yes, okay. exactly. I assume that the Latvian FDA is every bit as rigorous as the American FDA. Not even close. Not even close. Not even close. Okay. <laughs> and it's an older drug. And what I, what I like about this is, so people talk, because in reality, we, we talked previously that albuterol in some instances can be considered both either a therapeutic or performance-enhancing drug. Correct. And I think her statement was, I am taking this for a medical indication. That's correct. But when you look at a drug that's taken by 0.001% of the general population and 20% of the sporting population, it does suggest that maybe people are taking it for less than medically indicated reasons. So actually, that's that's 100% correct. Actually, what happened is Maria Sharapova said she was using it because her family has diabetes and she has some pre-diabetes and she wanted to protect herself from these medical conditions and then she did not stop taking it quickly enough and got caught using it before the Australian Open this year. Uh, But like you said... Very few people across the world actually take this drug. However, the World Anti-Doping Agency noted that more and more and more famous athletes were taking this drug. And all of these athletes cannot be taking it for coronary artery disease, for CHF, for pre-diabetes and all these things. That is why they made the decision in January to put it on the banned substance list. Okay. And then in theory, she should have known that. Her advisor should have known that. That's Her right. sports medicine toxicologist should have advised her of that. That's right. And it was in her system. And yeah. the idea that this is a false positive really isn't there. No. Um, it's definitely a positive. She, she admits it's such because she was taking it. So, right. so she admits that she was actually taking it. But you're right. One of the things that fell through the cracks was that her advisors knew that it was on the list. They should have told her, Maria, you have to stop taking this drug because it's on the list. You're going to get busted. And it was a two-month period of time between when it went on the list and when she was caught using it. So it's hard to really kind of see why this happened to her. Okay. And uh, do you know of anyone else, any famous people that are using it? There's actually Ekaterina Bobrova, who is a Russian figure skater, actually was caught using meldonium as well recently. And very similar story as uh, Maria Sharapova. Although Ms. Bobrova said that she actually stopped taking it once the World Anti-Doping Agency made it illegal. Right, but it sounded like BS because then she said she was positive still two months later. That's right, exactly. And that's what got a lot of the scientists on the World Anti-Doping Agency looking at her with a very skeptical eye because it really doesn't make sense, right? I mean, she should have been negative. Was she the one also whose husband was, yes. was yeah, mysteriously got a prescription for it? Right, so that, it's funny because if you look at a lot of the Eastern European countries, a lot of those athletes take this drug and a lot of their husbands take the drug even if they're not athletes. And so they get male prescriptions of this drug to their husbands. I'm not making any accusations or anything, but that's the cover for a lot of the athletes is that their spouses was getting mailed to their spouse and not to them. Okay. Are there other drugs like this? Because I feel like this is a class of drug that we didn't necessarily talk about. Yeah, no. So this is, it's, it's, so I don't want to say it's new because you're right. It's an old drug. It's been on the market for a long period of time. There's some other drugs that are looked at for their ability to increase blood flow to certain organs, especially muscle, um, and well, so, people with peripheral vascular disease, classically. Yeah, and there's t- yeah, exactly. There are tons of drugs that some call smooth muscles that relaxation in the periphery who we, you know, we would increase blood flow to your muscles. So those particular people with peripheral artery disease, that would be the drugs that are used for those. It would be perfect drugs, perfect drugs for this. And you titrate it just right 
where you increase blood flow but don't drop your MAP significantly. So that would be a good thing for an athlete. Especially, I think that the athletes that are particularly vulnerable to wanting to use this are cyclists because, um, not to call out cyclists, but what this drug presumes to do, realistically speaking, all scientists think, is that it, it increases recovery. So it doesn't necessarily help you when you're playing tennis in the match, but you have a grueling match or you have a grueling ride in the Tour de France, you need to come back the next day and either play or ride again. This drug presumes to help you recover from the rigorous exercise from the day before. Well, I hope you enjoyed the second part of that interview. Join us next time when we talk to Dr. Barry Rumack about what else? Acetaminophen toxicity. You can find out more information about this show and past shows we've done at our website, TalksNow.org, or follow us on Twitter at TalksNow. And please feel free to check us out in the iTunes store and leave a comment, as that's how many people find us. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. Talks Now is produced by Matt Zuckerman, with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W. Or via our Facebook page or tweet us at TalksNow.org.